we have just the great privilege of, of studying through the Gospel of John. And I am just constantly amazed at what God is revealing to us as we open up his word afresh every week. As, as I go to study it, the things that maybe I'm anticipating are going to be there. Um, it's, it's, a, it's different. <laughs> and, and God is showing me in, a, in my time, my own personal study, um, just um, some amazing things. And I trust this morning as we go through it that you will be encouraged by what he is for us this morning. I want to talk this morning, begin by talking about this word division. Um, in our culture, in particular in our Christian culture, the word division is somewhat of a taboo word, is it not? It's as if there should never, ever be any division. And I, I understand, and I would agree that the goal should be the pursuit of unity, especially if we mean by unity, a unity of belief, truths that unite, or a unity of, be- of behavior, living at peace with one another. Um, but the reality is, when God's truth is proclaimed, it brings both unity and division. There are going to be those who believe, and there are going to be those that do not believe. And so we, we need to recognize that division is a natural part of the Christian life, and we need to seek to be united around things like the truth and um, godly behavior. So when we think of the church in its context, in particular the context of society, we should not be surprised when there is division. Or maybe to put it a little differently, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is proclaimed in the context of unbelief will bring both unity and division. It will produce belief and unbelief. And we should not be surprised by that. And we should be ready for it. And we should not be blown away by that. Now, I'm not talking here about disunity because of sin. I'm talking about you know, division because of truth. Division because of the gospel. Division because Christ is being glorified by his people, and there are those who do not want to glorify him. But when the church has as its focus being accepted and liked in a community, it usually results in that church either deliberately or unconsciously diluting the gospel so that it will not be as divisive. We want to be liked in our community. We want people to think of us highly. And there's a side of that as a church. We want to have a good reputation. But the good reputation should be that we are being the church in the community that truly believes in something that is true, that is the gospel. It doesn't mean that you know, we should just be gentle and nice just to be gentle and nice. We need to believe what we believe, but not be caustic in how we believe it. And there's a, there's a lot that the Word of God can say to us about that. So it is important then for us to understand that when the message of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, it results in both belief as well as unbelief, and it causes unity as well as division. So we must recognize that the following statements are true. Statement number one, Christ divides. Statement number two, the gospel divides. Statement number three, Doctrine divides. The church divides. Christians divide, right? If we are doing what God has called us to do, if we're proclaiming what God calls us to proclaim, there will be those that believe and there will be those that don't believe. 
And it should not blow us away that that is the case because we see it over and over in Scripture, and in particular, we're going to see it in our passage today. So when the truth of God's Word is proclaimed and lived out, it will cause division because there will always be those who oppose the truth of the gospel. There will always be people who oppose the truth of the cross. Now, we're not after division. We're not trying to stir up division. It's just a natural outflow of living out the gospel in the context of a society that often, for the most part, does not want anything to do with God, shakes their fist at God, and would rather pursue their own sinful direction. So, this morning, let's begin right now by just going to the Lord in prayer and saying, God, would you give us wisdom, give us understanding for what you have for us today. So, Lord, we ask we ask for your strength to apply ourselves to your text this morning, to allow your Holy Spirit freedom to, to teach us and to mold us and to shape us and to guide us, to be conformed to the image of your Son. Help us, Lord, to set aside those things that might um, be potential distractions for us to grasp what it is that you want us to see. And Lord, allow this text to live and allow me to, to be your messenger and simply to be the vehicle through which you are speaking to your church uh, family this morning. We ask in your precious holy name, amen. So uh, let's go, let's get into this text. And I want you to notice that it says in verse 37, on the last day of the feast. We've already seen in chapter 7 the beginning of the feast. If you remember, the beginning of the feast is when Jesus' brothers say, Hey, Jesus, we've got a strategy for you. Go to Jerusalem in the midst of the feast, and then go, you know, while you're there, you know, do some miracles so everyone can see you. He doesn't follow their advice. He follows the advice of his father, the direction of his father, and he goes in, in private, and he ends up um, at the temple. But we find that that is at the middle of the feast. And in the middle of the feast in, in chapter 7, we find him answering really three questions about his education, about his origin, and about his destiny. That's what we looked at last week. And so today, as we're looking at the structure of the text and allowing that to be our guide, these are the events of the last day of the feast. But notice it says, on the last day of the feast, the great day. So not only was it the last day, but there was something significant about this day that made it a great day. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booze, um, uh, typically lasted seven days, and um, historians would record that there was an eighth day that was considered to be this culmination day. And so uh, what, likely what's happening here is that Jesus ultimately is going to be speaking, and these events are taking place on this eighth great day day, a culmination of sorts. So there's something significant, something of greater importance that is associated with this last and greatest day of this festival. And notice as we, we, we look in this text, it says, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Now, if we've been fl following the flow of what's going on here, if you remember a few weeks ago, I talked about the fact that, yeah, Jesus was doing miracles, you know, he, he was healing the, uh, the lame, he was, you know, changing or taking the bread and he was, he was multiplying it for the masses and we saw all of that, the feeding of the 5,000 or the 15,000, but we, we, we came to the, the realization that, that those miraculous things were only might want to say vehicles to point to the fact that Jesus has something to say. Just doing the miracle didn't share the gospel. 
it, it, it alerted everyone to the fact that there's something special about this person that you need to listen to him. And then as we go through chapter 7, we see things developing here where he begins to speak and he begins to teach. He begins to proclaim. And now here he's crying out. And what's happening here with this, this crying out expression, this is kind of a, of a, a, he, a Hebrew formula to say this person is standing up speaking formally to the crowd. So... When this construction in the Hebrew is used, it means that someone has something very important to say, and you need to listen to it. And so that's what Jesus is doing. On this culmination of this day, he stands up to speak to this crowd of people, and he has something very important to say. And so here are the the, the two things that we're going to see in this passage. We're going to first of all see that on this great day, it is a great day to listen to Jesus' divine proclamation. That's the first point, if you want to write that in there, okay? This is a great day to listen to Jesus' divine proclamation. The second point that we're going to find is this is a great day to, uh, to look at the people's divided response. There's a proclamation that Jesus gives, and we're going to listen to it, and there is a response that the people uh, have, and we're going to look at that, and God is going to use all that to help mold us and to shape us and to see how beautiful and awesome he is and how wonderful his gospel is too. So let's jump in here with this first, this first uh, section of this text. On this great day, we want to listen to Jesus' divine proclamation. Again, beginning at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, we want to first of all look at what I'm calling the logic of the text, okay? I just want to walk through what is being said here and just kind of give the logical flow just to make sure we understand what it is that Jesus is saying. The first thing that we notice here is that the thirsty must come and drink, right? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If you're thirsty, he's saying, in order to quench that thirst, what do you have to do? You've got to come to me and you have to drink, all right? So thirst, drink. Then he says here, if you believe, then you will have rivers of, uh, of living water that are flowing through your heart. So those who believe, secondly, are blessed with rivers of living water flowing through their hearts. You get that? So thirst and drink. If you drink, that's the same thing as believing. And if you believe... If you are embracing the message that Jesus is giving, there is a result, and that is that these rivers of living water will flow through your heart. Okay? Now, the next part of this formula, the logic that's going on here, is this. What are the rivers of living water? And John, kind of as an aside, gives explanation. He interprets what Jesus is saying to make sure that his readers understand what he's getting at. John says in verse 39, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the third thing is this. uh, What are the rivers of water? They are the Spirit, 
that you receive because you believe and flow through you. And the result then is that you have these rivers of living water flowing through you. So the rivers of living water are actually what? It's the activity of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. That's what's going on here. Okay? That's simply the, the logical flow of what's going on with what Jesus is saying here and what John is commenting on. it. So now let's think about the connection of what is being said here. Um, in particular, the connection to, that, uh, to this uh, with the, ta- the, the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths and with what is said in particular in the Old Testament. Now, as I mentioned, the Feast of Tabernacles was a, a week-long, eight-day-long um, festival. It was, it was there to remind the Israelites of their, their time in the wilderness, and so they built these little booths, and they lived in these, these, these created booths for, for this period of time. It was a time of thanksgiving. But during this, this festival, there were a couple of things that took place. First of all, there were sacrifices. Um, I don't want to take too much time in here, but just, just note this. On each day, there were offered in sacrifice two rams, 14 lambs, and a kid for a burnt offering. There were 70 bullocks that were offered during the course of that festival. They started out with 13 on the first day, and the next day it was 12. And the next day, and it just went down, 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 until on this last great day, there was one. Okay? In total, 199 animals were offered in sacrifice at the Feast of Booths celebration. So there's this, this time of sacrifice. That's still foreign to us, isn't it? We still have a hard time comprehending that. But those who were Jews understood the significance of sacrifice as a means of appeasing their God. All right? So that was part of that package. But there were also some ceremonies. And one of the ceremonies during this Feast of, of Tabernacles um, was this daily drawing of water from the Pool of Siloam. And so every day at daybreak... Um, for, for the seven days, a priest went to the pool of Siloam, drew water out with a golden pitcher containing about one and a half gallons or so. And as he walked then to the temple, um, he was accompanied by this, this mass of people and musicians all singing songs, songs from the Psalms, the Hillel Psalms. All right? So there was a lot of fanfare going on, but it was all related to this water ceremony. Okay? And there was some purpose behind that water ceremony. So you had the singing, you had the musicians, you had trumpets that were being blasted on. And, and that they were all pointing to something. They all had a purpose. And there's three purposes, really, of this ceremony. One, a memorial of water provided for uh, the, the people of Israel in the desert. It was a, a reminder of how God provided for them with the water that he, um, that he gave them through the rock. Remember that? Okay? While they were in the wilderness, he provided there. It was a symbol also of, of the forthcoming um, latter rain. And uh, uh, that was something they looked forward to, both from the perspective of their crops as well as a theological perspective of what was going to come down in the future. And the third point was this. It was a representation of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So even here in the Old Testament, they had this anticipation through this water ceremony of God's activity in the life of the people of Israel. And so we go to a couple of passages. You have them there in your handout. Isaiah 58 and verse 11. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. Well, how do you satisfy someone's desire in a scorched place? Yeah, you you give them water, right? And make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. 
Then we go to the book of Nehemiah. Now remember, in the book of Nehemiah, the word of God had not been open for a long, long time. And so Ezra gets up uh, in front of the people. In fact, the people gather and they start yelling, bring out the book, bring out the book, because they hadn't heard it. And they build this big platform and Ezra just starts to read it from the morning until night, day after day. And we, we pick it up in chapter 9, verse 15. Ezra says this, You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Jump down to verse 19. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night for them by, the, by way for them yeah, let me start here again. Nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manner from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. So this is, a, this is kind of a connection back to what God did, what God was promising. In fact, in the book of Nehemiah, they celebrated the Feast of Booze for a whole month. They realized that they hadn't been faithful to God, and they read it and said, we got to do this. So the connection here is the fact that this Feast of Booths, this Feast of Tabernacles, goes back and it celebrates God's provision of water for the people of Israel, but it also points forward to a time when the, the ministry and the activity of the Holy Spirit was going to be in full force. Okay, So you connect that to what we've already said. That is what Jesus is saying. You know, if you're thirsty, drink. If you believe, rivers of living water will flow through your heart. And then John interprets it. Ah, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. There's a time when Jesus is glorified that the Holy Spirit is going to have full-flown activity in the hearts of those who are believers, those who are followers of Christ. So here's the message of the text, and here is the, 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 the final part. We put it all together. Jesus is saying that the gift of the Holy Spirit, the rivers of life, is fulfilled through him, that he is the Messiah that is prophesied, that the passage like Isaiah 58 and, and Nehemiah chapter 9, we're always looking forward to be fulfilled through him. Okay? This is what he's saying. This is what he's claiming. This is what he's doing when he's proclaiming and he's standing up and crying out to these people on this last day, this great day. Now he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him would receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So this passage is saying, with Jesus, um, that we receive the active ministry of the Holy Spirit. Here's what C.H. Spurgeon says, um, just about the, the, the activity of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit makes a difference in people's lives. He's, you know, it's, he, he equates what's going on here um, with... Uh, with a, a, a harbor where the tide is out. And there are ships that are stuck in the silt. And you can get thousands of people to try and pull those ships, but they will not move until the tide comes in. And the tide lifts them up and frees them. And this is just a beautiful picture of the activity of the Holy Spirit in the life 
of a believer. It is not simply, oh, I made a decision for Christ. It is the Holy Spirit coming and freeing us from the bondage of our silt, lifting us up, giving us freedom to move and to function, to go and to do the things that God has called us to do. A wonderful picture of that activity of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. But listen, understand this. The focus in this text is not on what the Holy Spirit can do for you. Although it is very clear that the Holy Spirit does many things for you, but it's more a focus on what the Holy Spirit does through you. And this is, this is so important for us, guys. Hear this. We certainly, when we believe, are satisfied. Jesus has given that message, right? I'm the bread of life. Right? Eat the flesh. And, and drink the blood, and you will find satisfaction for your souls. That is certainly there. But here we have it taking even further. You're hungry, you're satisfied, you're thirsty, you're quenched. But, but the greater truth is that when you, when you believe, when you drink here, that you are now the vehicle, you're now the means by which other people can be satisfied. So friends, get this. It means that to be Christ-centered is not to be self-centered. This is not about what can God do for me, although there is a sense in which I need God, but it's the privilege of not being self-centered, but when I come into the family of God, he gives me the Holy Spirit. The rivers of water are flowing through me, so I'm not self-centered, I'm other-centered. Certainly the Holy Spirit teaches us, he guides us, he, he, he counsels us, he convicts us. There is huge activity of the Holy Spirit in us, but he provides himself as, a, as, as the means through which uh, he works through us. And that's why when you have a gift, when God has blessed you with gifts and talents, in particular spiritual gifts, that he wants them to be used. And you find as you study the spiritual gifts that those spiritual gifts are not for selfish purposes. Those spiritual gifts are for the benefit of the body of Christ. So if you are gifted and you hoard it, you're not using that gift for his glory because that gift is for the edification of the body of Christ. Now, this is what Jesus says. Come and drink. And when you drink, when you believe, the rivers of living water will flow through you and those rivers are the Holy Spirit and his activity in your life. What an incredible message. What a powerful message. In fact, what a surprising message that the Holy Spirit so boldly would be on display for us in the gospel. I'm saying in the gospel of John, you know, you usually think of the Holy Spirit, when is he introduced? It's usually kind of later on, right, in the book of Acts. Boom, Holy Spirit everywhere. Here we have the Holy Spirit clearly explained by Christ and by John as, as that which we receive when Jesus Christ is glorified. All right? Now, there's the message. It's a great day to listen to the message that Jesus proclaims. It's also a great day uh, to look at the people's divided response. And like I said before, we shouldn't be surprised that the fact that there was a division among the people over him, that's verse 43, as we've already seen, um, Division is what happens when Christ is proclaimed, when the gospel is proclaimed. Uh, you want, might want to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, or you can just listen. Matthew 10, verse 34, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Oh, <laughs> okay. That's, that clarifies some things, right? Um, 
I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, and daughter against mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. The, the, the point he's making here is this, that when, when the gospel is received, when, when someone becomes a child of God, it naturally causes division. It naturally separates people from those that are close to them. Okay? Now, there's a general response that we're given, first of all, and um, it's a wonderful yet distressing window into the unbelief that is present among those who have the evidence of Jesus and who he is on display for them to see. Now, these, these responses, we can, we can just say, oh, those are responses out there, but I think those, these are also responses that we may find with, under the umbrella of Christianity. And let's just think through them a little bit um, because they're given to us very clearly, but kind of generally, this is what the people were doing. So there were some that, first of all, um, uh, said that he is the prophet. Now, let me ask you a question. Is Jesus a prophet? Yes. But the problem here is it's not enough to say that Jesus is the prophet. What they're saying is we recognize that Jesus not only is a great man, but he is the prophet. He is the one that God is using to point to the Messiah, but he is not the Messiah himself. And so, friends, it is not belief. It is partial belief. But partial belief is still unbelief. So when you find someone, you're talking with someone, they say, you know, I, I have great respect for who Jesus Christ is. Um. He's a good man. He was a great teacher. In fact, I think he was historically one of the great prophets. Understand that that statement is not sufficient for belief. In fact, it falls way short of belief. It's partial belief, and partial belief is still unbelief. It's the kind of thing that, that people um, say when they're like, you know, I, 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 I like the inspirational words of Jesus. I read the Bible, and, and I'm inspired by what it says, and I'm inspired by, by you know, what Jesus has done and his example and stuff. All right, Inspiration is not a bad thing, but it is not sufficient. Um, it's the kind of thing that maybe a parent says to a child. It's like, you know, we're, we're sending you to Sunday school. And in their mind, they're thinking this will be good for the child, right? That there's this religious dynamic. Just learning some things about Jesus is probably a good thing, but that's just not sufficient. Partial belief is still unbelief because they did not come to Jesus and drink. They recognized him as a prophet, but they were not willing to come to Jesus and drink. That's what his invitation was. Notice the next one. He is the Christ. He is the Christ. Is he the Christ? What's the answer? Yes, he is the Christ. So these people acknowledged his claim to be the Christ, but notice they did not follow up that claim with coming to Jesus and drinking. They recognized in their head, in their mind, they connected the dots. Yes, he is the Christ, but they did not believe. They did not drink. And so what we have here, I'm calling it unwilling belief. There was a belief. It was a, an intellectual assent. Yes, he is the Christ, but it didn't respond in belief. And listen, there are churches full of people like this. They can tell you stories from the Bible. They can quote you verses of Scripture. They can maybe even articulate points of theology. 
but they have yet to bow the knee to Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the Lord of their life. It is unbelief. They believe, but they do not bow the knee. They believe, but their belief is unwilling to come. And unwilling belief is still what? Still unbelief. Then there is this next group. He is not the Christ, we're told. Notice what it says. But soon some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where where David was? He's not the Christ. This is total rejection. But it's total rejection, get this, based on a quibble. Based on one little point of ideology that they think is the answer and the solution that kind of wipes out the whole argument. And notice again what it says. Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Their answer, the assumed answer here is no. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? Yes. And comes from Bethlehem? Yes. The village where David was? Absolutely. But they, they quibbled over these little details, but they were not willing to look further. He comes from Galilee, yes, but guess what? He also comes from Bethlehem, and he also um, is the, the, the offspring of David. They were not willing to look deeper, and if they had, they would have found out that he did come from Bethlehem, and he was the offspring of David. And this is often how people respond to the message of the gospel. They quiver, quibble over some perceived belief Something they heard, they've been watching PBS and there's been a show about who Jesus was, and oh, they found this, you know, this kind of you know container that's supposed to have the bones of Jesus in it. And if this container had the bones of Jesus, and then did he really rise from the tomb because the bones are here and all this kind of stuff? And oh wow, you know, and they quibble and people hold on to things like that and they believe those things that they want to believe, but if they were honest with the facts and the evidence, they would see that what they're believing really is not true. So they quibble over these little things. Now, friends, this is what happened a few years ago with the Da Vinci Code. Remember the book came out? Oh, you know, Jesus is, someone's leaning on him, you know. What does that mean? Oh, maybe he had a relationship, and you start filling in the gaps, and maybe there was, you know, oh, wow, maybe the Jesus we've been leaving... Friends, there will always be people that quibble over things because they want to deny the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. But when you press what they're quibbling about, you'll find out that what they're sharing is not true. It's not honest. All right? You see what John is doing here. Remember, John is writing this gospel because he is wanting to present evidence so that those readers will look at the evidence and believe, and it will be genuine belief because it results in life. So he is right here in this passage showing them ways that people respond to the message of the gospel, to the message of Jesus, to the point that, listen, this is how some of you are thinking. This is the struggles that you may have or that you have seen other people have. And Just be careful and just be aware that what they're thinking is not true belief, and what they're thinking through is not the right response to who Jesus is. The last group here we find, though, in verse 43, are those who desire to harm him. These are the ones who say, you know what? He needs to be arrested. 
So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid his hands on them. Yes, they wanted to snuff him out, but here's just the wonderful insertion that John gives us. Mm, the sovereign God of the universe is still in control. This is not the time for Jesus to be arrested. Oh, that will come, and I will hand him over when it's my time, but not now, not here, not at this moment. Again, man thinking he can take charge, control everything. God in his sovereignty knows exactly what he's doing. And friends, may that be a comfort to you. He is at work. He knows. He is aware. This is not just something he does with his son. This is something that he does with all of us. I can't explain it. It's too massive for me to comprehend, but I believe it because his word tells me it's true. And we embrace the fact that God is sovereign. He is totally in control of all that we are experiencing. Now, to be honest with the text, we must summarize those responses in two ways. Number one, unbelief, but I think there was also bewilderment. I mean, listen, if you were standing in the crowd and you were hearing these things, you'd probably be thinking, all right, what's, what's going on? If you're part of that greater crowd in that scenario, you may be confused. You may be struggling. You may be wondering, what, what is, how can he say, and, and are, these are incredible claims, and there's, there's an honesty we must have that if we were in that presence, would, be, would we be, you, know, you know, draw the line and say, do you believe? Yes, I do. I'm a follower of Christ, right? And that's, is that how it always is? The answer is no, that's not how it always is, and we're going to see that in just a minute. They're, they're, they're still muttering and they're whispering. If you go back a few verses, you find out this is what the crowd was doing. They were doing that because of this oppressive presence, because the soldiers were out to arrest Jesus. And there was this great division. There was this, there was this struggle going on in the community. And it all had to do with Jesus. It's a great divide. But now we're given, in the rest of these verses, some specific responses of individuals, some specific ways um, in which some individuals are responding to Jesus. And I want you to draw your attention, first of all, to verse 32 of our text. That helps us know what's going on here. Notice verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. If you remember, the chief priests and Pharisees, all part of this, this Sanhedrin, this leadership, and they had these officers, soldiers. You might want to say light soldiers. They probably were not you know, um, incredible fighting soldiers like the, the Romans were, but they were enough. They probably carried weapons, and they, they had some brute force. But they are sent to arrest Jesus. So these officers have been sent to arrest him. They go to the temple on that great day when Jesus is speaking. The mass of the crowd is there. They're there with their you know, hands on their swords, ready to march up and to arrest Jesus, but they begin to listen to what he is saying. They're out fulfilling their responsibility, what they've been commanded to do. And you've got to think, you think military here. You've got to think order. Notice what happens here. There is confusion among these officers. Verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Get this, you're sent out to arrest Jesus. You know where he is, you're listening to him speak, and you come back from there and you're empty-handed. Now, friends, hear this. If there is ever any evidence that shows 
that there was something significant about Jesus and something powerful about what he says, it is this particular response of the officers. What happens here? Well, the emphasis in what they say is on, in the Greek, is on this man. No one ever spoke like this man. We've lived our lives from beginning till now, and we have never, ever heard anyone speak like this. There's something powerful. There's something significant. There's something different about this man. So much so that they would not and did not follow their orders to arrest Jesus. Let me ask you, how does that work in a military context? You see how this is huge evidence. They go to arrest him, but they don't because they listen. And I'm sure in their minds they're thinking, why are we arresting this guy? What he has to say is powerful. What he has to say is significant. And it had an effect on them. So much so that they returned to their superiors and confessed their disobedience. Listen, if you have not obeyed an order, you probably don't want to go back to your superiors and say, "Mm, I know you ordered me to, but, because it's not going to go well. There was nothing flippant about their actions. This is evidence in the raw, friends. Their disobedience is evidence of the fact that they saw in Jesus something unique, something special, something that betrayed their willingness to follow through and arrest him. They're confused as to why they need to arrest this man. Then, I want you to notice, not only are the officers, but in this passage, we have another person that's brought into the situation, and his name is Nicodemus. And I want you to see his consideration. After the Pharisees berate the officers, Nicodemus comes on the scene again, and and we first saw him in chapter 3. Remember that, that great interaction. He asked Jesus to meet him at night, and Jesus interacts with him uh, and says, listen, you must be born again. And that whole discussion of being born again, the whole discussion about regeneration, what that means. Um, and uh, Nicodemus then here is exercising, he's, he's kind of like a voice of reason who's exercising reason, or exercising um, yeah, reason in the context of hatred. He defends Jesus by appealing to the law. Now notice what he says, verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Now, we're kind of jumping in the, in the, in the flow of the text here because I, I want to end up with the chief priests and Pharisees, but you understand that Nicodemus is speaking into a context of of contempt and hatred and desire to kill and desire to arrest and just get remove Jesus from the scene. And he is speaking up in that particular context. And I want you to notice Nicodemus's words in light of chapter 7 and verse 24 where Jesus speaks and he's speaking to those who are questioning whether what he is saying is true. And remember from last week, he says this, do not judge by appearances, but judge with the right judgment. What is Nicodemus doing here? He's appealing to the Pharisees and the chief priests that if you're going to make a judgment about Jesus, you need to judge him with what? The right judgment. He goes back to the law. He's a voice of reason here. He's a voice in the story that is crying out to the reader to not judge Jesus by their emotions, which is what the crowd has been doing. He's a voice 
that is saying, judge him by the evidence that, and weigh whether or not this evidence is true. Remember, by the time that John is writing this gospel, Nicodemus is a believer. He's been a believer. But right now in the story, he is, I want to say, in process. <laughs> what we have in Nicodemus is this gradual belief. And listen, let me just pause here for a second, and let's just, let's just talk shop a little bit. Some of you, and just like me, have, have, have grown up in the context, you might want to say, a high-pressure, soul-winning, conservative kind of ministry where you, 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 know, you, you go up to someone, you share the gospel, and you're calling for a question. That's kind of the culture maybe you've, you've grown up and it's been a part of. And in, and in that particular Christian culture, gradual belief is almost anathema. You know, today's the day, make your decision for Christ. You're either in or you're out, right? That's, that's the idea. And there's no room for a gradual awareness and understanding of the Spirit's activity and this regeneration that has taken place and this final understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. In that culture, in that context, it's more like just make your decision and say that you're in the, in the body of Christ. And the problem is so many people make a decision and they're not in the body of Christ because it wasn't a genuine decision after all. Because they really didn't grow in their understanding of who it was and there wasn't really regeneration there. And there's, in that context, um, this gradual belief is almost, like I said, anathema. And we've got to be careful because both are true. Because someone can hear the gospel for the first time and God can just might want to say, boom, breathe life into them. That happens. But what we have here in the Gospels is you have, you have this, this gradual understanding of, of individuals that come to faith in Christ. Some take a long time, some take a shorter time. For example, the, the, the Samaritan woman's faith. It wasn't instantaneous, but it was over the course of a few days. When we get to chapter 9, we find this blind man. In the, in the context and the flow of what's going on there, he simply responds when he's been asked the question, well, who is this person? Well, he, he's a prophet. And then, the, then they come back and ask him again because he's not satisfied. Well, well he you know, he's the, he's, you know, continues on and grows in his understanding. He says, well, you, know, you should know these things. And finally, he says, he's the, he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. There's this, this is natural growth. And certainly with Nicodemus, we find him at the end of his life doing what? When Jesus' body is taken down from the cross... Joseph of Arimathea takes his body and puts him in his tomb. And who's there to help him? Nicodemus. And we, we infer by that that Nicodemus has come to the place where he is now associating himself physically, bodily, with those who are followers of Christ. So it's just, just a, a word of caution there, but something to, to be reminded of, that, that gradual belief is something that takes place. And that's why it is perfectly okay for you to share you know, begin to share the gospel with someone, and then, you know, a week later you see them again, you continue to share the gospel. In the context I was kind of grown up in, it was more of a salesman approach, right? You better get them to call for the question and get them saved right then and then, and, you know, got that notch on my belt, move on, next person. And friends, that's not typically how it is. Sometimes it is, but that's not typically how it is. It's, it's a slow process of people coming to this place where they begin to understand who Christ is. But now I want you to notice the contempt of the chief priests, the contempt of the chief priests and the Pharisees, all kind of in one group here together, right? So as we come to this, this group, we come face to face with an attitude of contempt that does not want to listen to reason. It doesn't want to acknowledge the facts. It only wants to 
root out any opposition to their own personal agenda. And their contempt for Jesus can be seen through their passionate prejudice that is on display. We see it first in the response to the officers. Verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, answered the officers, have you been deceived? Remember they said, we've never heard a man speak like this. And they say, have you also been deceived? Have any of, of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? All right? We begin the first of three tactics that we must be mindful of that are present when those people who are hearing the truth of, of God's word do not want to listen, do not want to face the facts, do not want to reason. The first response is this, the lie of elitism. All right? What does that mean? Nobody important believes this stuff. Have any of the authorities believed this? Are they deceived? What's the answer? According to them, no. What about the Pharisees? Have they believed? No. Nobody important believes this stuff. This is the kind of thing you're going to get on, was it the Bill Maher show? You know what I'm talking about? This kind of, this kind of attitude that, you know, Christians are just a bunch of knuckleheads. The elite people, they don't, they don't recognize, there's no authorities, no Pharisees. None of them are caught up with this deception. Maybe in today's culture we would, might think of it this way. No scholars today believe in the literal return of Jesus to the earth. I should say, no scholars actually believe that Jesus is literally going to turn to the earth, right? No experts truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You watch those PBS shows, scholars, experts, you know, you know, and, and degrees are all thrown out there. Oh, well, well, yeah, this, oh, that must be really, really important. Only the simple-minded, the unimportant, the pea-brained people would believe such deception. So we now find out who we really are, right? We're the simpletons. We're not the elites, right? It's a tactic, friends, to squelch facts, to squelch truth. It's this elitist attitude. No one of importance really does X, Y, and Z. But listen, God is a humorous God, is he not? Is he not? Let me show you why he's a humorous God. Because in this very context, we are introduced to Nicodemus, who is a what? A ruler? Who is a person of importance? Who is certainly on track? to actually believing in Jesus and who has some compassion and consideration. So as the person's reading this, and they know probably already of Nicodemus, they're thinking, wait a second, no one in authority, no one of importance actually believes this stuff, but oh, there's Nicodemus who speaks up. <laughs> God's just laughing. You can use your arguments all you want, but guess what? What you're saying is not true. And elitism is full of flaws. It says big things, sounds important, sounds authoritative, but it sounds that way because it doesn't want to deal with the facts before them. All right? Um, then we have the next lie. And the next lie we find in verse 49. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Now, who, who's the crowd? Is it the Pharisees? 
Is it the chief priests? Nah, it's the people. The unlearned, the uneducated people. How in the world do they think that they know anything about the law? Right? So here's what's going on. It's the lie of ignorance. These people are simply ignorant. If you believe this stuff, you're ignorant. They're accursed. They're ignoramuses because they don't even know the law. Who in the world are they to actually even make any judgment about the law? They don't know what they're saying. They're just simple, ignorant people. Bishop Ryle speaks well about this whole idea. And here's what he says. The multitude who followed Luther in Germany, the followers of the Reformation in England, the leaders of the Christian revival, were always attacked as ignorant enthusiasts whose opinion was worth nothing. When the enemy of vital religion cannot prevent people flocking to the gospel and cannot answer the teaching of its advocates, they often fight with the weapons of the Pharisees in this verse. They content themselves with the cheap and easy assertion that those who do not agree with them are ignorant and know nothing, and therefore it counts as nothing what they think. If you don't agree with us because you're simpletons and you're just peons, guess what? You're ignorant. There's the answer. You don't know because you're ignorant. Ah, but our humorous God enters the fray again. And notice what happens. He breathes out again through the pen of John to remind us of what Nicodemus says. Verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, talking about Jesus, and who was one of them, one of the Pharisees, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? What's going on here? Ah, you claim to know the law, but this is actually what the law says. You get that? In other words, the people who should know the law are proving themselves to be ignorant of the law, even though they're accusing these peon people of not knowing the law. They themselves don't even know the law. So friends, don't be intimidated by the prejudiced attitude of those who simply won't agree or simply who, who turn on you because you don't agree with them and they call you ignoramuses or they call you simpletons, it is simply a tactic to cover their own ignorance. That's what's going on here. They're just ignorant. They don't know the law. And God speaks through Nicodemus. It's like, well, neither do you. All right? Now, here's the last one. The last one's really interesting um, and I think helpful. They replied to Nicodemus now, one of their own, are you from Galilee too? Now you have to understand, there was this real, real prejudice from those who were part of the city to the country bumpkins in Galilee. Okay? So there's some of that prejudice that's going on. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now that, that claim has already been stated, right? And now this claim is made again by the Pharisees and the chief priests. So rather than listen to the carefully stated rebuke of Nicodemus, the Pharisees respond harshly and powerfully with a slogan. Now, what is a slogan? A slogan is a statement 
that becomes a rallying point regardless of whether it is true or not. You may have heard the expression when it comes to public speaking, when it comes to ministry, if I'm pastoring or if I'm preaching, weak argument, yell louder, right? If it's a weak argument, just yell louder, and that, that should cover your base. It's kind of what's going on here. So what is the slogan? What does the slogan look like? Rather than argue the facts, you just repeat the slogan over and over and over again, and it will be what the people ultimately believe. Now, fortunately, we are in a political year. So I'm reminded of a few political slogans. All right, let me just go over them for you. you you'll, you'll, follow, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, right? First one we all know, hope and change. No responses, please. I'm just giving you the slogans, okay? Integrity and leadership. Now, you know, some of these slogans you read, you're like, well, of course I believe in that. So one guy's hope and change, the other one's integrity and leadership. It's like, well, you know, confused. You know, what do I do here? Liberty, prosperity, peace. We are the 99%. Remember that one? Country first. The change you deserve. Now, what are all these sayings? They're political sayings for the purpose of rallying people. And what you find out is that people rally behind a banner, a slogan, but oftentimes they don't even know what the slogan means. They don't understand what the slogan means. And oftentimes the slogan is dead wrong. And what is the slogan that's going on here? It's repeated. They, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see. No prophet arises from Galilee. No prophet arises from Galilee. No prophet arises from Galilee. Shh. Little secret here. Jonah and Nahum are from Galilee. So what they're even mentioning as their slogan, they themselves know is not true unless we're talking about Pharisees who don't know the Word of God and are totally ignoramuses themselves. No, they're students of the, Lord, of the law. They study it. They know that's true. But the slogan was what was used to defend themselves against the evidence that is before them. They simply just wanted to snuff Jesus out. And so they go and they use a slogan. And friends, listen, we can also be under that same kind of a thing. And the day might come when we are the objects of persecution and there will be slogans that people rally around that will not be true about you, but people will believe them anyway. It's the nature of people. It's the nature of the political scene. The people just rally behind a certain banner, may not even understand all the elements of it. And sometimes people rally around the banner of Christianity and still have no comprehension of what it's all about. It's a slogan. And what is God calling his readers to do here? To recognize that there are these responses. There's the lie of elitism. There's the lie of ignorance. There's the lie of slogans. Be aware. Be mindful that those are there because those are all there to try and, you know, kind of take and remove the evidence that John is presenting about who Jesus really is. Now, turn your Bibles once again to um, John chapter 20. Let's just remind ourselves of what John is ultimately shooting for here as he records his gospel. Verse 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, 
which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Evidence that leads to belief that ultimately leads to life. And not just eternal life, but life that is abundant. And friends, John's writing this gospel to present Christ, and he wants his readers to recognize that there are going to be those who are opposed to the message of Jesus, opposed to the evidence, and they'll use all sorts of means to brush aside those facts that are laid before them. It's already happened. I'm sure it was already, it's happening as people are reading this. It's the context of living in a fallen world where the message of Jesus Christ causes division among people. Listen, when it comes to these chief priests and Pharisees, the truth doesn't matter much when you simply have to be right. Right? It doesn't matter what the truth is. We've got to win. We've got to be right. We've got to get rid of Jesus. Now, let's bring things to a close here. Some concluding thoughts. I don't have anything on the screen, um, but just some thoughts that I thought would be helpful as we, as we kind of wrap our hands around this. We began with stressing that division is a word that naturally finds it, its place alongside the gospel for a number of reasons. But this passage also draws our attention to the essence of unity. And this passage, um, as John reveals this picture and these reasons for a division, he also gives us a clue as to the source of unity. And listen again to Jesus' words, beginning at verse 37. Let's read it again. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And get this, man has in his efforts sought to rid himself of division, and he is pursuing world or might I say global peace, right? I and mean, that's, that's the mantra you hear. United Nations, the goal is world peace, all that kind of stuff, right? The church is often saying we need to be united as if conforming to some external constructs or simply signing a doctrinal statement will solve the problem. But as we see as the gospel unfolds, we unite around Christ. We unite around the cross. We unite around the gospel. But get this. Our unity ultimately comes by the fact that if we are God's children, we have flowing through us rivers of living water. We are all united by the Holy Spirit. We're baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. He is the one that ultimately unites us. You go to John chapter 17. I was reading it this morning, and it's just amazing. All these themes that John has in his gospel are fleshed out as, as Jesus is praying this prayer, and he's calling for unity. He's calling about his glorification, and he's calling about the church or the people there being one. How does that oneness take place? Does it take place when everyone in the church gathers together and signs a document that says we agree on these points of theology? Or does it come together when we have certain standards that we agree to? No. Unity comes because of the Holy Spirit who lives in us and is at work in us. So when Jesus prays for us to be one, he 
He's praying for the Holy Spirit to have his full way because he is going to be glorified. And what are we told happens when Jesus is glorified? The Holy Spirit is going to come and have his full activity in the life of his believers. And friend, if you're a child of God, you are united to other of God's children because you are also indwelled with the person of the Holy Spirit. And friends, that is what unites us. And if you've ever been on a missions trip before, you'll recognize this. You walk into a church, different people, different culture, different dress, different Bible, different practices, things that maybe you would disagree with, but you walk in and we're united by virtue of the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit that also is at work in the gospel and Christ being central and the cross being central. All that is working together and it's a beautiful thing. We are the body of Christ. We are under his care. And may those rivers of living water flow through us and accomplish all that they desire to do for his glory. We ask. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. Thank you, Lord, for the instruction and the guidance and and the care, Lord, that you have given in revealing yourself in the pages of this text. Help us now, Lord, as we celebrate what you did on the cross how you gave your body, how you shed your blood on our behalf. And, Lord, how that was not just a thought that happened in your mind after we had fallen into sin, but, Lord, that was your plan all along. And, Lord, you accomplished your plan by being that sacrifice once for all. And, Lord, may as we look back, may we celebrate, may we remember, may we be reconciled to you, Lord, as we confess our sins. Help us, Lord, now to apply the things that we've learned, to, to, to chew on them, to grow because of them, Lord. And uh, Lord, we just praise you for the fact that you have welcomed us into your family. So Lord, we, we now commit this time of celebration to you. In your precious name, amen.